One way of defining or describing the nature of a Buddha is as someone who has come to an end of seeking, an end of searching. And one way of describing a liberated heart is a heart that is free from a painful, aching sense of lack or incompleteness. Now, Siddhartha, before his liberation under the Bodhi tree, was a heroic seeker, an example to us all. Disappointed with his life. He was disappointed with all that he had, as lovely as it was. He was aware that it didn't cool or console the aching sense of there being something missing, something lacking within his own heart. So Siddhartha did what we often do with disappointment and a sense of lack. He got busy. And he got busy seeking experiences and transcendent moments, happiness and peace and seeking what it meant to be truly free. And he sought these everywhere. He's everywhere but where he was and with who he was. He sought these kind of experiences and attainments outside of his life and outside of his body and his heart and his mind and his relationships. And feeling separate and apart from all he longed for, he actually sought the end of that longing separate and apart from himself through the kind of ethos I described this morning, through suppression, resistance, disconnection, disdain. And in the end, in the end of his search, Siddhartha returned to the very places he had fled from, understanding that where else could he understand what it meant to be free, apart from this body, mind, heart, and life. And we know, we know that wherever we go in this world, wherever we go in this life. These are what we take with us. This is the divorce we can never have. So he came back to his body, mind, life to find the end of seeking. And there was a turning point for Siddhartha. When he remembered a time when he was a small boy and he was sitting on a hillside looking down on his father's fields, just really a nothing very special moment, watching a farmer plowing. And he remembered that there had come to him in that moment this very sublime sense of peace and contentment and ease, a moment of real serenity. And he rem remembered that sense in that moment that, that it was just simply enough. It was complete. There was nothing that could be added to that moment, nothing to gain, nothing that would have improved upon it. 
And for Siddhartha, I think it was just this perhaps a small glimpse of freedom, a small glimpse of <clears throat> intimacy, a small glimpse of a liberated heart. And I find that many people who come to practice can relate to this story very well. You know that there are times in our life when we are so frantically trying to be happy, you know, trying to find something, trying to get something. And I think probably we all have had moments in our life when we put down the trying. And sometimes they are moments when we're startled into wakefulness, moments in nature, moments alone, where we can, we suddenly realize actually, this is ease, this is peace, this is contentment, that there feels to be nothing missing. But remembering that memory, Siddhartha took his seat under the Bodhi tree and he turned his attention to everything he'd rejected, everything he tried to disconnect from. Understanding is the liberated heart, if a sense of freedom couldn't be found here amidst this complex, at times mystifying life, where else could it be found? And he spent, as the story goes, he spent that evening, that night, throughout the night, contemplating his body, his mind, his heart, his life. And he saw so clearly and so simply and yet so profoundly that there is sorrow, that there is a cause of suffering, that there is an end and a path to the end. And as it said, he really came through those insights and those understandings to the end of seeking. And he got up from the Bodhi tree and he said, I've done what needs to be done. I've come to the end of the path. I've understood what needs to be understood. I've understood this profound and limitless liberation. Now, of course, that wasn't the end of the story. Now, as we all know, the Buddha at that point didn't turn into a statue. <laughs> he didn't move into a cave. He didn't retire from life. He didn't stop questioning. Just becoming, because he'd come to the end of seeking didn't mean he'd come to the end of questioning or deepening or commitment. In fact, as we know from the story, for the next decades in his life, the Buddha cared deeply, was deeply engaged with the world on every level, socially, politically, spiritually. He lived a vital and creative life. The one thing he didn't turn away from was the awareness of suffering. He never said, well, you know, tough luck, you folks, you know. He knew that the only response was actually compassion. But he had come to this end of, of a sense of lack or incompleteness. Now, I always think that it's very important that when we tell these stories, it's, it's very important not to romanticize these stories, but to remember that they're essentially teaching stories. And teaching stories are always an invitation for us 
to see our lives in the lives and in the stories of others. And in many ways, we can find so many parallels probably in our own lives to Siddhartha's life. We know about disappointment. We know about disappointment. We know about the disappointment of expectations. We know about the disappointment of the things that we've, you know, at times worked so hard for, not always providing the inner peace or happiness that we want. What we also learn from Siddhartha's story is that in this teaching and tradition, disappointment is not bad news. That disappointment is in truth a place of tremendous wisdom. And as far as I can understand and see, disappointment has actually been the starting point of every great spiritual journey. Because it, it, it's, it's, a shift, it's a shift from prowling the world for the source of happiness and freedom to turning inwardly to discover the happiness and freedom of our own hearts. In many ways, Siddhartha's story is so much our story. The story of the journeys that we make in our life from a sense of disconnection or estrangement to being close to, to being intimate with. The journeys we are all asked to make in our lives from resistance and blame and fear to find within our hearts a greater sense of acceptance. We can probably all trace our journeys from the sense of lack and incompleteness to those steps we take to discover a a greater sense of peace and freedom. And perhaps the the heart of Siddhartha's story is always an invitation to all of us to question and to explore what would it mean for us as a human being to come to the end of discontent? What would it mean for us as a human being to come to an end of lack, an end of seeking in our own lives. Because I'm sure that when we, when we do kind of take a retrospective view of our lives, it can seem as if our whole life has been in search of something. And sometimes that searching, of course, has been very vital and creative. And, and motivated by questioning and curiosity. And we're also aware, aware probably that at times our searching has been really driven by fear and by discontent. And in that kind of seeking, of course, we're not looking for something that we already have. We're often searching for all that we believe that we don't have a different, uh, a better mind, a different, uh, more improved body, a different kind of life, a different kind of experience than the one we're having. You know, we search for all kinds of things. Some people search for perfection, some for love, some for safety. And we tend to do our searching outside of ourselves apart from where and who we are. 
And I think that this is sometimes the kind of tension or the pain that is almost kind of knitted into some of our seeking. Because it's always about later. It's always about later. It's always about, you know, I'll be happy after this is over. You know, I can really begin to live the life I want to live once this miserable wretch who's annoying me is out of my life, you know. You know, I can have the kind of mind I really want to have once I've managed to annihilate these kind of thoughts I can't welcome. You know, and that kind of seeking that that's driven by discontent, it's mostly a sort of postponement practice, isn't it? It's about future and later and should and need. This is kind of the vocabulary that we often use. And the other tension and the pain and the seeking that is, is driven by discontent is that we believe that the end of our seeking actually has so many conditions. To get something we don't have, to be someone we are not, it often feels like we just have to get rid of or annihilate everything that's getting in the way. Milarepa is one of the the great kind of dharma spiritual figures in, in Tibetan teaching. And Milarepa was this kind of really boot camp type yogi, you know. He, he, he lived in the solitude of the high mountains and alone. He never hardly ever saw anyone. <coughs> and he lived on nettles. Now, some people say already this is a completely unrealistic story. But I have to tell you, there are people still living in the Himalayas, living on nettles. You know, my, my teacher, my first teacher, Geshe Rapton, he came from a very poor family in Tibet. So when he went into the monastery, he had no one to sponsor him. So at that time in Tibet, if you had no one to sponsor you, basically you didn't really have anything to eat. So he used to live on nettles. Sure, he was quite truthful in telling us this. He used to live on nettles and he was so thin that all his fellow monks and nuns used to call him Skinny Rapton. And then he got a tuku when he became a wise, a wise uh, yogi. He was given a, a young tuku, a young lama to train. And because that was a very prestigious thing to do and a very, you know, very respected thing to do, suddenly he got all these offerings. And then they used to call him Chubby Rapton. His name, that wasn't actually his name. But anyway, to get back to the story. Milarepa went out one day to gather the firewood to cook his nettles with. And when he was out of his cave, it was inhabited by this horde of vicious demons. And he came back and he tried everything he could possibly think of to get rid of these demons. He tried to negotiate with them. He tried to frighten them. He tried to overcome them. When that didn't work, he sang to them. When that didn't work, he offered them mantras and blessings. He prayed for help. He tried pretending they weren't there. And one by one, all of the demons disappeared until only the last and the most fierce of all the demons remained in his cave. And all of his strategies exhausted. 
Milarepa confessed he could do no more. And in the end, he placed his head in the mouth of the demon, saying, welcome, stay a while, move in, bring your friends. And of course, like all good Buddhist stories, this one has a happy ending. And the demon in the face of Milarepa's acceptance and surrender was transformed into a rainbow. Now I'm going to return, return to this story a little later in the talk and give you a different ending. Now again, I don't want this just to be a romantic story, but actually I suspect that to some extent we can all see ourselves in Milarepa. You know, when we meet our difficult people, our difficult circumstances, our difficult minds, difficult events in our life, don't we just try all of those strategies? We try abandonment, we try avoidance, sometimes we despair, sometimes we resist, sometimes we fear. It's kind of part of all of our lives. What do we do? with that which is hard to be with. And we see that actually it really is often hard for us to be near that which is unpleasant or painful or threatening. It's hard to, hard to be near grief and sadness. It's hard to stay close to a sense of lack or heartache. We can see that the movement of disconnection is such an impulse in our life. It happens so quickly. And we do see that behind often that disconnection and avoidance in our life, we see there's what is called aversion. Aversion. It's not actually hard for us to see that anxiety and aversion are really the proximate causes and conditions for disconnection to happen. You know, perhaps you might even have had a glimpse of this today, the ways that we can disconnect from thoughts that are hard to be with, or emotions that are hard to bear. Sometimes we just space out, hmm? or we sink into, into sleep. It's hard to be near people that we struggle with, or pain that feels too much to accommodate. Yet we notice the kind of um, boomerang effect that what we try to avoid in this life really tends to haunt us. It really tends to, to shadow us. And that this kind of impulse of abandonment is what we learn through mindfulness, is that the impulse of abandonment really does very little but strengthen aversion and anxiety. It's almost with each moment of abandonment as if we are feeding our demons and solidifying aversion and anxiety. And of course, the whole, you know, much of the, the work and the practice of mindfulness is really to reverse that impulse. It's to learn the art of non-abandonment, the art of being close to, the art of staying near to, 
we could call it a kind of intimacy with our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. And perhaps that intimacy is really the first step in the path of liberation. To be at home, to feel really at home in our bodies, to feel really that our mind is a friend, to be really at home in our lives. You know, in the Zen tradition, it's said that enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. And what mindfulness does, or this practice of intimacy does, is it slows down that momentum. It really turns the tide of abandonment. And that intimacy, that mindfulness, and the quality of kindness within mindfulness is really an antidote to aversion and ill will in all its guises. Intolerance, judgment, impatience, estrangement, all of those guises of, of ill will that so disturb our hearts. You know, the Buddha spoke, of course, as aversion or ill will as being one of the manifestations of fear. And, and we all know that I think the impulse of fear is to, the reflex of fear almost, is to disconnect, is to, to jump away. But I think in this practice, when we learn to befriend everything within our hearts, when we learn to befriend everything within our experience, and we look closely at aversion, and fearlessly at aversion, we can see actually it is suffering. It's kind of like a toxic virus that spreads through our bodies and minds, often infecting our lives and relationships. And aversion, too, is such this powerful home of this sense of I and you and us and them. So this path of liberation, this path of freedom, asks us to be intimate with to find ways to explore and to understand everything that alienates us from a sense of completeness and freedom. To understand the nature of this landscape of, of aversion that we can find ourselves in too often. And this is kind of like a, not a vague or a theoretical exercise. I mean, most of us don't have to struggle too hard to find moments of aversion. You know, we could ask ourselves, what are the demons that are still living in our own caves? And I'm sure we've tried all the same strategies that Milarepa has tried. We may have tried ignoring them, negating them. We may even have tried offering our demons endless loving kindness. Or we may have gone on the path of explaining endlessly to ourselves and the world how appropriate our aversion is. Mm -hmm. Other, you know, we don't even call it that. You know, other people we say are aversive types, and I, you know, mine is righteous, and I'm just pointing out what's wrong. I may even be trying to help you out with that. But sometimes we exhaust all our strategies and still there's a demon or two remaining in our cave. They may have visited you today. 
They may be people that we struggle with who've hurt us in the past. They may be people or situations that are hard to bear in the present. Sometimes our demons are a politician or even someone here. You know, our demon can be an illness that lingers. Our demon in our cave may be an obsessive or raging mind. The disappointment we can't let go of. Now, mindfulness and intimacy is actually, you know, not about being free from the difficult. It's actually about being free within the difficult. And sometimes we kind of inch our way towards that, that closeness and that intimacy and that mindfulness. Because sometimes, you know, we, we do open our hearts and we see the terrible torment and suffering in the world. Or sometimes it feels like the waves of pain in our own lives are too much to bear. And sometimes we need to know how to step back and to explore these domains of our caves that feel so difficult, almost in bite-sized pieces. Now, it's very easy, of course, to think that these small moments of irritation or intolerance or, or anxiety really don't matter. But actually, in this teaching, they do, because they are the seeds of greater intolerance and hatred and patience fed by dismissing them. Intimacy doesn't begin with blame or judgment, but with willingness, with willingness and interest and learning to have a dialogue with the difficult, a conversation with the difficult. In the Tibetan tradition, there's, there's a, a, a sentence they say, it says, grant that I, I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart may be awakened and my path of compassion fulfilled. You know what the appropriate difficulties are. They're the ones we have right now. So what does it mean for us to have a dialogue with the difficult, with our worst enemy, with our aching back, with our obsessive mind, with any demon? Well, first that dialogue begins with our willingness to be steadfast, our willingness really to stay present, not to flee. It's so often said that we can only ever hate from a distance, and we can only learn to love and to soften by staying close. And we may, in doing that, discover that the size of our enemy or the size of our demon is only equal in size to the degree of aversion and fear that we have. You know, when I was a child growing up, I, I, I had a, a father, and I, I have discovered that, you know, many people had my father. I mean, not literally my father, but many people had the same father that I had growing up, who was, who was often just too angry, often just too angry and moody, and sometimes the anger so big it would fill the house, you know, and, and me and my siblings when we were children, you know, we often used to feel that we had to hide away from the, this, this anger. And, you know, now my father, he's a very elderly man, you know, and amazingly still has the energy to be angry. 
I cannot believe it. You know, after all this time, he hasn't got tired of being angry. He still manages to muster it up at any, any small little instigation. But something has changed in, in me. I, I can so see the loneliness that that anger brings, the, the terrible fear of being out of control, the terrible fear of being out of control. Now, as anger is a way of really feeling in control. And this is not something I ever feel I need to hide from. This is something I can have a dialogue with. And certainly I, I see that in my own life, that aversion only ever pushes the world away. And every time there's a kind of consent to irritation or intolerance, it, it's pushing the world away. And it's almost like these great anxieties and small anxieties, these great angers and small angers, it, it's like they're the arms and legs of the same demon. But when we stay close, we maybe do begin to see that our, our demons and our suffering are really not always so much in the people or the events of this world. But the demons and our, our suffering and is really much more within the resistance and the fear and the aversion. And Mary Oliver has a, a wonderful poem called A Visitor. She says, my father, for example, who was young once and blue-eyed returns on the darkest of nights to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lip swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time, I did not answer but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open, and I knew I was saved and could bear him, pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp and looked into his blank eyes, in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. Now, of course, it is not just difficult people or situations in this life that we push away. So, too, do we turn that that very terrible power of aversion and resistance upon ourselves, with judgment and self-blame, with guilt and scorn. You know, the Buddha said this such a simple thing. He said, hatred does not cease by hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. This is a timeless law. Now, we all have, of course, a potential for plenty of anger and fear and anxiety, but we all, too, have the potential for kindness, for fearlessness, for compassion, for love. 
It is acknowledging that our hearts and our minds live in this state of potentiality. Side by side do these potentials live. And the choices of our lives is what is it that we nurture? What is it that we cultivate? What is it that we bring to maturity and fruition? We need to learn to attend to all the small and large moments of anxiety or resistance. But it's also so, so important that we learn to attend to all those moments in our day when generosity is present, when there's patience, when there's kindness, when there's compassion, when there's forgiveness. Because these are the moments actually that really inspire us. These are the moments upon which we build our path of freedom. To have a dialogue with all things is the beginning of the end of being governed, being dominated, being overpowered. I'd like to read you a, a story I came across. A man, a man was telling the story of how his heart was transformed after an accident in which he lost his sight. And he spoke of the power of touch, touching the tomatoes in the garden, touching the walls of the house, the materials of a curtain or a clod of earth, as surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But he said it is more than seeing. It is tuning in on them and allowing the life they hold to connect with one's own life, like electricity. To put it differently, this means an end to living in front of things and the beginning of living with them. Never mind, he said, if these words sound shocking, for this is love. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, moving continuously, bearing down, and finally detaching themselves. The last, perhaps the most significant, motion of all. I think this is the kind of dialogue, the kind of intimacy, we are invited to have with all that we struggle with and fear, to know them deeply and to let them go. Now the story of Milarepa, as I told it, of course had a happy ending. The demon turned into a rainbow. But what would that story look like? if the demon had taken up Milarepa's invitation. Because we know that there are things in this life that don't go away. In fact, life itself doesn't go away. So what if the demon took up that invitation, moved in, brought a friend, redecorated the cave? Then what would be asked of Milarepa? I think it's called understanding. It's what the, the Buddha called the first noble truth, that in this world there is actually unsatisfactoriness, there's unreliability, there's uncertainty, there's unpredictability. At times there's discomfort and pain. And we'll never have that perfect world of our own. 
that sometimes discomfort is part of our lives. And I'm sure we could all exhaust ourselves trying to devise new strategies to endlessly avoid that. I mean, I've personally never met anybody in my life, and I've never known uh, of anybody in all of history who's achieved a discomfort-free life. And I'm, I'm pretty certain I won't be the first. And I think it's good to know that we won't be the first. But of course, the first noble truth is not also the end of the story. There's also the second noble truth, that there is so much struggle and sorrow in our lives that is optional, that has causes. There's also the third noble truth, that there is an end of struggle and torment. And there is the fourth noble truth, the path. But they are not outside the first noble truth, finding the freedom within the difficult. If the demon had taken up Milarepa's invitation, Milarepa would have asked to get to deeply know his demon. And we're asked to find that same intimacy, and out of that intimacy is born acceptance. The acceptance that is not passive, but the acceptance that is alive and vital of making peace with, befriending all that we are prone to reject, to know actually the freedom of heart that could invite our demon to stay. What Milarepa would have been asked to do if his demon had taken up his invitation, he would have to make his cave bigger. And that's actually what we're asked to do in our lives, to make the cave within us of our own hearts and minds more boundless, more vast, more spacious, more accommodating. Acceptance is made so much easier by simply knowing the places we struggle and the willingness to calm the struggle. Acceptance is a deep, deep state of fearlessness and wisdom, born of investigation. What is it that makes someone or something feel unbearable? What is it that makes any part of our mind, our body, our heart, something to be disdained or rejected? What is it that leads us to divide the world into friends and enemies. Sometimes we say, well, it's judgment or aversion, but I think it, it is deeper. It is often a kind of existential fear, and it is often the views that we form, the views that become our, our place of certainty and conclusion. If I, if I give you an example, you know, perhaps there's you know, it happens on retreats. You know, you have the misfortune of sitting next to the most restless yogi in all of meditative history, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you can find yourself, you start with a little impatience, huh? just a little impatience. And then, you know, you start listening, waiting for all the signs of that restlessness. I mean, you're not even meditating with your own experience anymore. You're just actually meditating with somebody else's experience. And you're waiting for the shuffle, the sigh, the yawn, the scrunch, the noise, 
the rasa. And pretty soon you can feel yourself working yourself up to a view. Well, this is the most mindless person in the whole world, you know. They are probably disturbing everybody's retreat. They're certainly ruining mine. We see them in the hallway. They're quite innocently getting a glass of water. There they are. The most restless, mindless person in the entire universe getting a drink of water. We have fixed that person in a view. We have fixed them in that view to our conclusions, our assumptions. We have absolutely we, no idea actually what's going on underneath that. But we assume our view to be the whole story. Now, we often do this, of course, to ourselves too. You know, we don't simply reserve that privilege for others. You know, we do it to ourselves. I am like this. You know, I am useless. I am worthless. I'm you know, the most terrible yogi in the universe. You know, I'm hopeless. I'm da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, the story goes on and on and on and on. You know, somebody on the retreat I just taught said that whenever they heard themselves doing that story, they would kind of sing E-I-E-I-O, E-I-E-I-O, E-I-E-I-O. Here it goes again, the same one, you know, the same story, that same journey. And all we do is feeding our views and feeding that solidity. And what this practice does and asks of us is a place of generosity, a place of kindness and compassion, is to be willing to exchange our views for a quality of curiosity and investigation. Knowing that our views can never ever tell the whole story of anything. And there's a taste of freedom within that investigation. There's a taste of freedom within that curiosity because views keep us imprisoned. They keep us stuck. It is a surrendering the view can be a place of great openness. It allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult. It allows us to be steady. It allows us to cultivate not knowing the generosity and the kindness and the patience that can truly be a taste of liberation with our own hearts. It all begins with mindfulness. It all begins with that simple willingness to stop fleeing, to be present, to be present in our life, to be present in every moment, to be awake to the life of our bodies and minds and hearts. But that is the beginning of the journey. That wakefulness is not the end of the journey. It is the beginning of the journey. And it's the beginning in which we peel away these these layers of views and anxiety and aversion and ill will, and we cultivate all that which is healing and liberating, moment to moment. We have just a moment quietly together, and then we'll have a walking period.
So we have a half hour for some walking and then a, a last sitting at 8.30 and just as an encouragement, there's something very lovely sitting in the quietude, the silence of the evenings here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.